It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 225 for January 16th, 2011. Recorded January 14th. Oh no, it's the worst virus ever. How often do you receive a message that begins with something like, if you open a message with an attachment called food on MP4, your hard drive will be erased and your computer will be vaporized, followed by several exclamation points. This has been confirmed by Microsoft and Snopes and MSNBC, so I know it's true. More exclamation marks. Please forward this message to everyone you know. More exclamation points. What do you do with a message like that? Well, whatever you do, please don't forward it. Messages like these seemed to have died out, but I've noticed a resurgence that started in the fourth quarter of 2010. You might ask, isn't a bogus warning better than a computer virus? That's the wrong question. It's like being asked whether being gored by a wild boar is better than a collision with a transit bus. There's no relationship. Bogus warnings that are forwarded indiscriminately are bonanzas for fraudsters. Yes, for fraudsters. Because people are people, a certain number of mistakes will lead to the compromise of some number of computers. Compromised computers will yield email addresses, and a message that has been forwarded many times almost certainly has collected dozens, if not hundreds, of email addresses. So besides needlessly raising the fear level among computer users, these fake alarms actually play into the hands of the bad guys. Speaking only for myself, I learned not to open unexpected attachments early when I fell for the very first mass-distributed computer worm. Remember I Love You on May 4th of 2000? Although my computer was on a LAN, I recognized the problem immediately and disconnected from the network cable fast enough that the infection was limited to my computer. Even then, I should have known better, and I have never been victimized in the nearly 11 years since. A good antivirus application and post-any inspection ahead of my computer's email inbox have reduced the number of virus-laden messages that reach my computer to near zero. But even if these protections had been absent, there has been no threat in the past 11 years that would have infected my computer. Protecting yourself and your computer isn't a question of being a high-tech genius. All it requires is a little bit of common sense and logic. Most messages with links to phishing sites, worm or virus attachments, or other threats might as well have DON'T OPEN ME in 96 point red type highlighted in yellow. They are that obvious most of the time. For example, fraudulent phishing messages have certain characteristics that make them pretty easy to spot. The message might be from you. Well, if it is, delete it unless you have actually sent a message to yourself. And don't depend on that from address. It's easy for anybody who has just a tiny bit of technological know-how to create a message that appears to have come from anybody. Don't depend on the presence of corporate graphics in the message either. Just because the message contains a Bank of America logo or a PayPal logo doesn't mean that's where the message came from. 
If a message threatens the loss of account privileges or says you made a purchase you didn't make, it's probably a hoax. If you're uncertain, use your telephone to contact the financial institution, internet service provider, or store. Do not use any link on the email or any phone number provided by the email. And one of the largest and most obvious warnings, if the message asks you to confirm any information that the store or financial institution should already have, the message is a phony. No bank will ever send a message that asks you to fill out a form that confirms your account number. They'll tell you what your account number is. They may ask you to confirm some other things, but they will tell you your account number, your entire account number, not just the first four digits. They won't ask you to confirm your security question. They won't ask you to confirm your social security number, although that may happen on a phone call. They won't want your address. They won't want your phone number. They certainly won't want the PIN or just about anything else, period. These are things the bank should know, and if anybody's going to do any confirming, it's the bank that should be doing the confirming. If the message claims that you ordered something but provides a link you can click just in case you didn't really place that order and want to cancel it, that message is clearly bait. Don't take it. But rather than try to think of all the possible indications that a message is bad, maybe it's easier to look for clear indications that the message is valid. When you receive a message with either a link that the sender asks you to follow or an attachment that the sender wants you to open, just ask yourself a few questions. Here's a list of some of the questions, and it may appear intimidating, but you can perform most of the tests in about the same amount of time it takes to look both ways before crossing the street. In other words, it takes far longer to explain these tests than it does to actually do them. First, is the message from somebody I know? If it is, then I'll proceed, with caution. Is the message from somebody who routinely sends me messages? If I'm an entry-level employee, the CEO probably isn't in the habit of sending messages that are personally addressed to me. If it is a message from somebody who routinely sends me messages, then I'll continue. Does the message read in the way a message from the claimed sender would read? If the message seems to be in character, proceed. If the sender is somebody who has an advanced degree and who is generally very careful about spelling and punctuation, then hey, dude, this is for you, may indicate the message is not from the person it claims to be. Are you expecting a message with an attachment or a link from this sender? Did you, for example, ask the sender to send you a copy of a business proposal? Does the sender usually send you links to websites? If so, continue cautiously. If you're sent a link, is there any clear explanation from the sender to explain what the link is? One of the more recent ruses is simply a message that contains nothing but a link. Don't click. If there is a clear explanation from the sender to explain what the link is, then you can probably proceed. But check to make sure that the link goes where it claims to go. If the words and the link match, proceed. Now, how do you find that out? Well, hovering the mouse over the link will display somewhere on the screen the actual link target. A link that claims to take you to example.com might actually take you to give.u.virus.com. Check that out before you click. And does the link make sense? A link to www.heave2.forward/support.harvard.edu will not take you to Harvard University. Instead, it will take you to heave.to, 
and open a file in a directory called support.harvard.edu. A directory, not a location. I don't know whether heave.2 exists, but if it does, it would be registered to the Kingdom of Tonga, an archipelago in the South Pacific Ocean. Before you click a link, consider whether the target site is safe. Well-known sites, Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, and such, are generally safe. If you know a site, techbiter.com, for example, you can reasonably consider it to be safe. If it's a domain you've never heard of, it doesn't hurt to perform a Google search on the domain name to see what others might have to say about it. If it seems safe, go ahead and continue. And the final test for links, if you have any concern about the link, contact the sender to ask about it. In most cases, this won't be necessary because the preponderance of evidence from the test will either be positive or negative. But if you're at this point and you're still not sure, it doesn't hurt to ask. If you've received an attached file, is this the kind of file you would expect to receive from the sender? And is it named appropriately? If the file seems reasonable, go ahead and continue. An MP4 file from somebody who has never sent you an MP4 file would be suspicious. Some email applications allow you to open a file by double-clicking it. Instead, save the file to your computer, then run a virus scan on it. If the file passes the test, you can proceed with caution. With caution, because a test by an antivirus program isn't conclusive. A false result simply means that the test didn't find anything. Now, somebody has to be the first person to encounter a new threat, and that somebody might be you. So, if anything has raised any concerns, contact the sender before you do anything with the file. And that makes all of those silly warnings, don't open a message with an attachment called whatever, just silly. And in most cases, they're fakes. The primary point, and I know I've said this before, never implicitly trust any message. Anything that arrives via email should automatically be suspect. One of the topics I have for you next week is some reasonably priced digital cameras. These days, a digital camera offers more than just the ability to take still images. Many cameras include a video function. If you use that function, you may want to share the resulting video, and it's easy. I should warn you, this story does involve cats, but hang in there. YouTube is what most people think about when it comes to sharing video clips, but there are others. One of the cats who shares our space likes to sit in the bathtub and drink water from the spigot. I captured this event on video, added some music, and posted it to Shutterfly. You'll find a link to the video on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and let me know what you think of Phoebe. I could just as easily have uploaded the file to YouTube or Vimeo, which I've used before, Photobucket, or to numerous other sharing sites. You'll find links to all those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Wikipedia lists 60 websites, 60 of them, that allow users to share videos, and that's just the clean sites. There's no mention of user-created porn sites, and they exist too. Sites such as Vimeo even have tutorials that explain the video basics so that you'll post a file that works for other viewers. Lots of digital video cameras exist now, and many digital cameras, even those lower-priced consumer cameras, can create videos. And that changes just about everything. Being able to create videos easily and sites that allow us to share them change the way we view media. They also change the media we view. Even if you're an amateur with a basic digital camera that can just capture basic video, 
you can share that vision with thousands of viewers. The Vimeo Video School covers the basics that every video producer, amateur, or professional should know. Vimeo starts by saying, choosing a camera is the first step on your way to making videos that you can share on Vimeo. There are lots of options to choose from, including camcorders, simple point-and-shoot cameras, and nowadays cell phones with built-in video cameras. Where do you even start? Seriously. Follow the link that's there on the TechBiter Worldwide website and watch for Andrea. The free tutorials from Vimeo are among the best examples I've ever encountered when it comes to explaining video to people who have no idea what a time code is, for example, or why video has 29.97 frames per second instead of 30, or why crossfades are almost always better than fancy transition effects. So even if you have no clue about any of those things, Vimeo will help you. Later, the Vimeo Basics program says editing video clips together can be really fun, especially once you master a few basic features in your editing program. With a bit of patience and experimentation, you'll be producing smoothly edited videos in no time. This is absolutely true, and the Vimeo program discussed editing with both Mac and Windows computers. So whether you have a Mac or a PC, you do have a basic video editor. If you want to do something more involved, you'll need a more advanced application. Phoebe the Watercat, the video I mentioned earlier, was created with an inexpensive point-and-shoot digital camera. Not a video camera. I did edit it, though, in Adobe Premiere Elements. To the list of buggy whips, watch springs, and slide rules, we can add film. Nothing lasts forever. Western Union's owners, for example, famously thought that the telephone was a passing fad. Eastman Kodak, the film company, recognized early on the threat that digital photography posed and attempted to reposition itself as the picture company. That's largely been unsuccessful because many people no longer make prints. Instead, we share photos online or by email. Even the technology behind the big change is changing fast. In the 1990s, one of the largest computer shows in the world was PC Expo at the Javits Convention Center in New York City. The bursting of the Internet bubble and numerous other factors combined to terminate the show. In its heyday, it completely filled all rooms on all levels at Javits and effectively sucked all taxis in Manhattan over to 11th Avenue. The Jacob K. Javits Convention Center fills the blocks between 34th and 38th Street, 11th Avenue, and the Hudson River. Built in 1986, it was named for U.S. Senator Jacob K. Javits, who died that year. So it's effectively four city blocks under roof. More than that, actually, because most of it's two stories tall, and the central area is three stories tall. And PC Expo literally filled it all. In June of 1999, I took the first digital camera I had purchased with me to New York for PC Expo. Because I had been shown an application that could magically stitch together a panorama from a series of individual photos, list price several hundred dollars, I clicked several pictures of Javits. The software worked, but only if the images had been produced carefully by mounting the camera on a tripod. For my handheld images, the resulting panorama was... A complete failure. Fast forward to December 2010. I was looking through some old images and found my putative panorama. Would modern software be able to do a better job with my five little pictures? I asked Adobe Photoshop CS5 to create a panorama 
To create the panorama, Photoshop combined the five images, aligned the images, and then created transparency masks for each image. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have the images split apart so you can see one, three, and five in one image, and two and four in the other, and then the final combination. Then the result following the use of Adobe's content-aware fill and the application of some lens corrections. If you look carefully at the full-size image, you will see a few rough spots, but the result clearly shows how far the technology has advanced in the past 11 years. As for film, well, consider the Eastman Kodak Company as a good indicator of film's health generally. In January 2009, Kodak posted a $137 million fourth quarter loss and began the process of eliminating more than 4,000 jobs. At the end of 2010, Standard & Poor's dropped the company from its S&P 500 listing. Buggy whips, watch springs, slide rules, and PC Expo, all gone. Film is fighting what would appear to be a losing battle, but digital photography and the software associated with it is going strong. In short circuits, at last, some competition for AT&T. Since the iPhone's beginning, it's been an AT&T device in the United States, but now, finally, it is possible to use the device on another network, or it will be very soon. Analysts suggest that the addition of Verizon could double Apple's market penetration with the iPhone. For corporate America, there is still a problem. The iPhone doesn't work well with Microsoft Exchange servers, although Apple has made some changes to make the system more compatible. The Verizon version of the iPhone goes beyond AT&T's version by offering the ability to be a portable Wi-Fi hotspot, and that hotspot can connect up to five devices to Verizon's 3G network. Oops, 3G. AT&T's network is 4G. 4G, that's the fourth generation, that's what the G stands for there. Fourth generation is considerably faster than the third. Only time will tell how important that is. Other smartphones can create a portable Wi-Fi hotspot too, but usually they charge an additional fee for it. Verizon, for now, won't charge an additional fee, but don't expect that to last very long. The biggest competition the iPhone faces now is the Android phone. And those who actually like to have control of the devices they own often choose the Android model because of Apple's restrictive mentality. Apple wants to maintain total control of its devices, and this explains why every time Apple updates its iTunes software, my iPods cause iTunes to crash for several weeks. Maybe Apple needs to take a slightly less restrictive approach. The primary target for smartphone apps is still the iPhone, but the Android market is growing. It's becoming more attractive to developers. Today, the Android has about 80,000 apps to the iPhone's quarter million but there's also a lot of duplication. So we'll get to see how all of this plays out in the marketplace. The U.S. Department of Justice wants information about Twitter posts made by Julian Assange, Bradley Manning, and several other people between November 1st of 2009 and the present. These are people the Department of Justice believes may have been involved in the latest WikiLeaks leak. In addition to Julian Assange, there are people who are alleged to have been associated with him. Assange, of course, a persona non grata with the U.S. State Department and most of the rest of the U.S. government. Three of those listed were involved with releasing video that showed a U.S. military helicopter firing missiles in an attack that killed Reuters journalists in Iraq. 
The Department of Justice demands that Twitter hand over the users' names, their credit card numbers, addresses, and other information, such as their connection records that would show when the users had logged in and how long they were online. Twitter has advised the users that their information has been subpoenaed. A federal judge released the information publicly in early January after Twitter asked that it be permitted to notify the targets of the federal investigation that they were being investigated. As always, privacy and security battle. They are at each other's necks. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.